What's up, everybody? Oh, that's great. Hi. Love you guys. Glad you're here. Uh, how's everybody doing tonight? Doing well? Sweet. Uh, got some friends on stage with me here. So, yeah, come on over, y'all. Um, if you guys didn't know, we do this thing here at Salt Company called Summer Teams, which means once a year over the course of summer, we actually have the opportunity to send students to the other side of the world, okay? Pretty sweet opportunity. And with that, saying, okay, for one summer, I'm going to not earn income, I'm going to miss work, I'm going to not earn income, I'm going to miss weddings, I'm gonna be on the other side of the world in most cases without my cell phone to call home and talk to my mom and dad, interact with my siblings. But at the end of the day, you open up your Bible, you look at Matthew 28, the Great Commission, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And you're like, wow, good news of gospel. And then at that point, you never heard the good news of gospel. And then at that point, you're like, eight weeks, right? Like, yeah, it's sacrifice, but I want in. And that's what these seven have done. Woo. They've, yeah, we can cheer for that. Like, that's a, that's a noble thing, okay? And in Romans 15, Paul actually says, hey, here's my ambition. My ambition is to preach Christ where he is not yet known. And they're going to a country, they're going to Thailand, city of Bangkok, which greater metropolitan area of Bangkok is about 13 million people. So take the state of Iowa, multiply it by about four, that's one city. And there's over one million college students in Bangkok, the majority of whom do not follow Jesus, and in most cases have never get to hop on a plane, fly to the other side of the world, and join long-term missionaries, fly to the other side of the world, and join long-term missionaries who are already in Bangkok sharing the gospel to make Jesus known, to make disciples. And so they're going to spend the summer hanging out with Thai college students and sharing Jesus. And what we get to really participate in tonight is what we call commissioning. It's seen really all throughout scripture, this opportunity to like join. You guys know that? Sending them. So 27 days. You guys know that? Most of you have a countdown. Okay, less than four weeks. May 18th, I'm going to ask you right now, pull out your phone, mark May 18th on your calendar, and set an alert, okay? Set like an actual event notification, and here's, here's all you have to do. Just put pray for summer teams. That's all I'm going to ask you to do. Pray for summer teams. There's a lot of things you can pray for them. If you're interested in like getting specific... Am I on? Getting specific prayer requests, come talk to one of these seven students after Salt tonight and say, hey, how can I pray for you this summer? But bare minimum, pray that they would cling to Jesus this summer. Pray that as a team, they would have incredible unity. And pray that Thai students would come to hear the gospel of really simple prayer requests. So May 18th, you should have an alarm on your phone. So May 18th, you should have an alarm on your phone that says, pray for this team. And don't let it stop there. We said that we have done here at Salt Company for a long time. We set an alarm for 10.02. If you're weird, you can set it for 10.02 p.m. If you're normal, you can set it for 10.02 a.m. 
And here's, it's based on Luke 10 too, which says, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest that he would raise up laborers. And it's based upon this fact, right at the beginning of the verse, he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Meaning there's a million students on the other side of the world who are just waiting for someone to go and share the gospel with them. Praise God, he's raised up seven laborers to go. But we want God to raise up more laborers in Thailand so that when they come back, there are Thai people sharing the gospel with their peers. That they might one day get to see something like this room gathered in Bangkok, worshiping the same God we worship. And so I'm gonna invite you to do something a little weird, okay? If you haven't been around church before, you don't have to participate. But if you've been around church, we do weird things sometimes, okay? Here's what you're gonna do. We're gonna pray for them and commission them. And here's what I'm gonna ask you to do that's weird. It's what it's symbolizing. It's saying, I am with you. I am sending you, okay? And though I have not given up eight sending you, okay? And though I have not given up eight weeks of my summer, I'm gonna be praying for you. I'm gonna be praying for your heart. I'm gonna be praying for Thai students. So as you feel comfortable, okay, I'm gonna invite you into this opportunity to extend hand. We're gonna pray with me, seven, that Jesus would become sweet to them and through them this much for these seven. God, thank you for Trenton, for Daniel, much for these seven. God, thank you for Trenton, for Daniel, for Riley, for Mac, for Gigi, for Danielle, and for Caden. God, thank you for pressing it upon their heart to preach you, Jesus, where your name is not yet known. Thank you for their heart to be obedient to your call to make disciples of all nations. And God, I know that that comes with a cost. I know that many of them are gonna be missing family and special events. They might even be stressed or worried about their financial situation, but Jesus, I pray that you would overwhelm them with a sense of peace right now, that you are for them, not against them, that you are sending them in power. And God, we pray that you would unite this team in the gospel that you would make yourself sweet and beautiful to them this summer. And God, we pray that you would save Thai students this summer. Over a million stationary partners, God, would you, would you do the work of building your church in Thailand to make yourself known to an entire people group that deserves to know you. And Jesus, you deserve their worship. So uh, be with these seven. Uh, be working in Thailand this summer. And God, for us that aren't going, would you bring this team to mind this summer to pray earnestly as they labor? And God, would you stir our hearts to labor with them? We love you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, y'all. Thank you. Excited for you. Give them a, give them a round of applause. <clears throat> Only one announcement tonight. It's kind of sad. Okay, next week is the last salt company. Yeah, not ever, just for the semester. Don't, don't freak out, okay? Uh, last Salt Company of the semester, next Thursday night, we're gonna finish out our Titus series. But here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna do dilly bars afterwards. <laughs> yeah, if you hadn't, haven't had a dilly bar, you should have by now. I'm sorry, you had a terrible childhood. We'll make up for it next Thursday. Uh, be praying that we get some warm weather. We can hang out outside, uh, have some fun, and then... If you're gonna be around Cedar Rapids this summer, we actually do this thing called Somersault. See what we did there? Uh, Somersault, June and July. So in church, Somersault starts at seven, not eight o'clock. 
so we're going to be at 7, not 8 o'clock. Uh, so we're going to be teaching through a series this summer called Connecting the Dots, Seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. Uh, you'll get to cover some of these awesome Old Testament stories and actually see how they reveal Christ, which is going to be a lot of fun. So um, before we dig in tonight, we're going to be in Titus 3. You can go ahead and open your Bible there if you'd like. Um, I just want to stop and say our staff team over the last two weeks has been running really hard with student leadership interviews. Uh, for those of you that have applied, have interviewed, I just want to say it's been such an encouragement to our staff team to just sit across from you and hear stories of how God has worked in your life. And for the student leaders who have already been leading, just to be like, wow, you guys have been living out what it means to be a family, right? Like here at Salt Company, we say, we're not just an event, we're a family. And actually, this is really important because in the Gospel of John, chapter 13, Jesus actually says this. He says, this is how the world will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. Like how we actually love each other as Christians. And so from me to you, I just want to say, from me to you, I just want to say, great job. Like you have been super faithful. God looks upon this group and he's like, wow. The world will know that you are my disciples based upon how you love one another. But let me ask you a different question. How are we doing interacting with the world around us? Or how are we doing interacting with non-Christians, people that don't follow Jesus? Because you see, we live in a day and age of reality TV docuseries. Uh, I'll ring off a few of them. You can raise a hand if you'd like to admit you're sick uh, obsessions. Okay, Catfish, anybody? Yep, I've watched it. Uh, hoarders, My Strange Addiction. Uh, I alluded to this a few weeks ago, I promise I don't have a problem. My 600 pound life, okay? These are TV docuseries and you have to just sit and wonder, like, how are these shows so popular? Right, like, these shows are disturbing. It's like the train wreck. You know the saying is, uh, it's a slow train wreck you don't want to watch, but you can't look away. It's kind of what's happening in these TV docuseries. It's like, I've been dating a guy for 10 years, but he's never been able to hop on a video. Not real. I've been sleeping on a bed filled with garbage. Uh, I've been sleeping on a bed filled with garbage. Uh, people eating the drywall of their house. It's like, y'all, you chill. You're going to eat your house away. Uh, my 600-pound life, eating six pizzas for lunch. And we're just like watching this happen. And we just keep watching, we keep watching, we keep, we keep watching. Do you want to know why these shows exist? I'll give you a really simple answer. They feed our ego. Because you watch these shows, and what it allows you to do on the other side of the screen is say, well, at least I'm not that bad. Right? Like, at least I'm just single as a Pringle. I'm not falling for that... 10-year relationship with a dude who will never FaceTime me. I don't eat six, pizza, six pizzas for lunch. I just go get six McDoubles for lunch. Like, that's way better. These shows feed our egos. And the problem is, Salt Company, this same mindset can creep into how we do church, how we do relationships. 
this idea of we're going to gather together in holy huddles, we're going to stick together, and we're going to look out at the world that is not in the church, and we're just going to put them down. We're going to be a part of this put-down culture that ultimately ends up platforming us and making us feel better. I'll give you an example. Man, how could people be so stupid to throw their life away with partying and boys? Wouldn't they just figure it out by now that those things are worthless? Like, wake up. How dumb do you have to be? Or, man, super annoying. This is, okay, confession. Super annoying. People celebrating Easter, but there's no Jesus. All they care about is food and family. What the heck? How could you be so dumb to celebrate a Christian holiday and not even notice Jesus? But as we talk like this, as we act like this, it's actually important to note that this is not God-honoring behavior. We're going to see that in our text tonight. And so the question that we have to ask tonight that this text addresses, how do we act towards non-believers? Like, how do we actually think about, talk about, interact with people that don't yet know Jesus? And maybe underneath that, we actually need a motivation check. Like, what should actually change, not just how we interact with them, but why we interact with them the way we do? So Titus 3, uh, in this chapter, Paul, Paul the, the author of this text, is actually kind of turning a corner. In chapter 2, he was talking about, here's how Christians act with one another within the church. And in chapter 3, he's going to start saying, here's how the church should live in a pagan society. Because Crete was awful. The island that these people lived on was just trash, morally. And he's like, here's how you're supposed to exist out in culture, not just in the church. So we're going to read the first two verses together. Paul tells Titus, remind them, remind the church to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to speak evil of no one, to work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. All right. There's actually two different things that Paul is getting at. First, he says, hey, you are supposed to be law-abiding citizens, right? Be submissive to rulers and authorities. He's like talking about governmental power. Like, be submissive. Follow the law. Say, oh, yeah, I should probably be like a law-abiding citizen. A follower of Jesus to say, oh, yeah, I should probably be like a law-abiding citizen. It's not that hard, or maybe it is, right? Because this Cretan government was full of corruption. They weren't an easy government to follow. And you might look at the United States of America and you'd be like, yeah, that sounds kind of familiar. <laughs> In all reality, we have it really good here. I'm just gonna say that. Compared to other world powers, you guys, our government is not as bad as you think it is. But... If you might think, hear some of the stories of the politicians and some of the stuff that goes on in D.C., you might think like, oh, follow these guys? Pfft, why? Right? And as college students, I think, I mean, fresh out of college, you're starting to actually like work full time and you're starting to see how much taxes are getting taken out of your pay and you're like, the government is taking our taxes. Ugh! You know? It's like, I don't want to pay taxes. 
Or maybe you got a lead foot. You know, you see the speed limit sign, you're like, nope. 55, more like 70. Or how about this one? Drinking age of 21, no thanks. Like, our government just needs to get with the picture because in other countries, the drinking age is 18. Well, you might say, well, if the government isn't following God, if the government isn't following the Bible, then why should I listen to them? I'm glad you asked. Romans 13, it's gonna be up on the screen. This is what Paul writes to the church in Rome. And you have to understand, Rome was not a great governmental culture. They were really oppressive. And here's what Paul tells them. He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. I don't know how you feel about that. <laughs> But the more I start thinking about taxes and speed limits and drinking ages, I'm like, wow, maybe God has put governing authorities over my life as an opportunity for me to show not just my obedience to these governing authorities, but my obedience to God. And so to say, oh, I'm not going to listen to the power that God has instituted over me is to say, I'm not going to listen to God. Okay? So when it comes to your taxes, right? Jesus, time and time again, said, hey, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, right? Pay your taxes, do what you're supposed to do. But here in 2022 in Cedar Rapids, it's like, go the speed limit, dang it. <laughs> right, like, you're not gonna steal God of time. You're not gonna trick him. Follow the law, okay? When it comes to drinking age, you don't live in Europe. I don't know if you knew that or not. You live in the United States of America. And so if you want to be a Christian, I want to, one who actually says, I want to follow you, God, and I want to do what you have asked of me, one of the things that you need to do is wait until you're 21 to have a drink of alcohol. I know you might not like that, but it's the word of God. This is not Jordan Howell telling you. I'm looking at Romans 13, and I'm saying, hey, this is an opportunity for you to be a light to the world, to actually take governing authorities seriously and say, wow, God must have put these people over me for my good. But you do have to raise the question, like, what if our government really starts to go astray, right? What if they start to ask me to do stuff that is just totally off the walls? Like, hey, stop going to church, stop sharing the gospel, whatever you do, do not pray to sharing the gospel, whatever you do, do not pray to the God of heaven, do not follow Jesus Christ. Well, that's where you also need to look at who's over who, right? Like, God is the God of heaven, and he institutes governing authorities, but if the governing authorities are asking you to do something that is contrary to God's commands, who do you ultimately follow? It's not a trick question. You follow God, right? Acts 4, you actually see this play out. There's these two dudes by the name of Peter and John, They've interacted with the resurrected Christ. They're going out. They're sharing the gospel. They're being persecuted. They've been thrown in jail. They keep speaking. And here's what happens. Okay, Acts 4 says, um, 
So they, this like judicial council, this governing authority, they called Peter and John and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. You're saying, I know you're telling me to shut my mouth and stop talking about Jesus. I can't do that. I must speak of what I have seen and heard. I must share the good news of Jesus Christ. So when it comes to governing authorities, really simple rule, okay? If laws are in direct violation to God's commands, follow God. But if they're not, if it's this secondary issue that actually doesn't have to do with fundamental human liberties or Christian doctrine, you're actually asked to submit to the government. And you doing that is showing that you trust God in putting leaders over you. But Paul is not just talking about being law-abiding citizens in Titus 3. He's actually talking about how our actions, words, and attitudes should be towards non-Christians. So, if you look at these commands, okay, speak evil of no one, and avoid quarreling, hindering people that don't follow Jesus. Stop getting so angry with them and fighting with them. Stop getting so angry with them and fighting with them all the time. Well, what about gentleness? Be gentle and show perfect courtesy towards all people. What's your heart posture towards non-Christians? Are you characterized by gentleness, graciousness, a humble attitude? And then up in verse one, I mean, he says, be ready for every good work. Like, are you looking to serve people who do not call themselves Christians? This like, be ready is like, be on the offensive, be eager to jump in and serve people who do not follow Jesus. So let me just check in with you quick. How are you doing with that? With your actions, with your words, with your attitude? Here's a few questions that just came to mind, okay? Are sinners, are non-Christians, are they the enemy or are they the mission field? Are non-Christians an annoying break from your holy huddle or are they the exact place God wants you to be the light in the darkness? When you interact with non-Christians, do you lead with compassion or complaining? Are you quick to argue to win or are you quick to ask to understand? When you talk about non-Christians with others, do your words reflect a heart of bitterness over their sin or a heart of brokenness over their sin? Or maybe a better question is to back up and say, do you pray for non-Christians as much as you talk about them? Do you love them, or are you just using them to feel better about yourself? When it comes back to your ego. Okay, it's a good thing to, good thing to want them to be obedient, to follow God's plan for their life, but the problem is, their life, but the problem is, Non-Christians are blind, okay? Scripture would say that they are spiritually blind. 
Have any of you ever met someone that's blind before? I mean, you raise your hand. Anybody met someone that's blind? Okay. I went to school uh, with a classmate who was blind. And I remember pretty vividly in seventh grade, new kid came to town, and he was a complete jerk to this blind classmate of mine. And he would come up to him and in front of his face would say, how many fingers am I holding up? He would taunt the blind kid. And though we can look at that story and we can be like, that's disgusting. Who would do such a thing? The reality is, Salt Company, if you are a Christian and you are trying to hold non-Christians to Christian standards, in many ways you are just like him. You are walking up to someone who is spiritually blind and you're saying, why don't you get it? How stupid can you be? Don't you know you're not supposed to do that? (laughs) And the answer is, they have deceived themselves to a spot of being so blinded to the truth that they actually don't have the power to respond to, to the truth, that they actually don't have the power to respond to God in that moment. They are blind. And so when non-Christians don't act like Christians, we actually can't be surprised. They're doing what non-Christians do. And my ask for you is, do not use the blindness of non-Christians to puff up your ego. To begin to platform yourself and think highly that at least you're not like those people. Because what Paul is about to tell us is there's actually a heart-level reason why we not only shouldn't do that, but we can't do that. Read with me. Verses 3 through 7. So, verses 1 and 2, like, here's how you act towards non-Christians, outsiders. For, for this reason, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. That's what was true of you, Christian. Look at your resume. But, important word, but. But, important word, but. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. People, why should we be kind? Why should we be merciful to people who have not yet said, Jesus is Savior and Lord? It's exactly what God did to you. It's exactly what God did to you. Because in verse three, Paul includes himself, right? He says, we ourselves, all of us, the man writing to Titus says, we, we were all blind. We were all lost. We were all led astray. We were disobedient. We were enslaved to our sin. All that we could do was disobey God. 
That's all that we had the power to do. And in fact, when it comes to this ego thing, we were, and that actually requires us to not love other people. This malice and envy, I ran across a couple good, uh, this malice and envy, I ran across a couple good uh, definitions here. Malice is wishing bad things would happen to people. Wishing bad things would happen to people. And envy is wishing good things had not happened to people. You see how those are connected? Wishing bad things would happen to people or wishing good things had not happened to people because guess what that does? That hurts our ego. If people get ahead, what does that say about us? It means we're behind. And so apart from God, our ego is so wrapped up in getting ahead that people become stepping stones to platforming our ego. But it's not the way it's, but it is. It's reality. Romans, right? But it is. It's reality. Romans 3.23, all have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. All were once blind. Or as Ephesians 2 would say, you were what? Dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sins on which you once walked. It's not super promising, right? When you're like, okay, what does a blind person have to do to be able to see? They have to try harder to see? What's a dead person have to do to become alive? Muster up the strength to come out of a casket? No, blind people can't try harder to see. And dead people can't become stronger to become alive. You're desperate. You're hopeless. You're sightless. You're lifeless. You need healing. You need to become new. That's humbling, right? Because as you look at verses four through seven, what are you contributing to your salvation? What are you contributing to knowing God? Look at this list. Okay, I'm just gonna read verses four through seven. And if you see anything that you can boast in yourself in, shoot out, shoot out like a hoot or a holler, okay? It's gonna be a pretty quiet auditorium. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, who saved us? He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. What can you contribute to your salvation? Nothing. It's humbling. God and his goodness and loving kindness, he appears. It's not us working to God, it's him appearing to us, putting on flesh, leaving heaven to come to earth. That God in flesh, Jesus Christ, makes God known to us. He goes to a cross and dies the death that we deserve. He saves us. He rises again. God in his loving kindness saves, why? Not by our works, but according to his mercy. That he looked upon your life and he just said, I love you so much. And it's not based upon what you have done or what you can do, it's based upon my heart for you. So I'm not gonna give you the punishment you deserve. 
I'm going to pour that out on Jesus. He's going to die in your place. God, in his goodness and loving kindness, generously gives the gift of his Holy Spirit. And this text says, regeneration and renewal. Okay? It's this idea that through the power of God's Holy Spirit, he has actually made you new. A new creation. You're not just a better version of your old self. Because a better version of blind or a better version of dead is still blind and dead. He's come to make you new. He's given you sight. He's given you life. And he has done this generously through the gift of his spirit. One of the things I found interesting in studying this text is that this word renewal is only used one other time in all of scripture. And anytime that comes up, I'm like, I'm pretty interested in figuring out where else this is used. Well, it's in Matthew 19, 28. Jesus is talking about, you know, how hard it is for a rich person to get to heaven, and Peter is pretty quick to say, Lord, we've given up, says, thing to follow you. What are we gonna get? And Jesus says this, truly, I say to you, in the new world, it's the same word for renewal, in the new world, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you're gonna sit on thrones with me. So this renewal is not just a personal renewal, it's pointing to this cosmic renewal, that Jesus is gonna come back, he's gonna make all things new. That's what renewal is. The fullness of the gospel is not just that he saves sinners, he is going to come back to make this entire world new. And our text talks about being justified by his grace. The word justified means that you are declared right before God. So yes, you have been saved from something. That something is sin. But that's not it. You're not just saved from sin. You're saved for something. Because this justification, though it is present tense, it's future focused, our text talks about us becoming heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And an heir is a child with rights of inheritance. A child with rights of inheritance. That's what God says about you. And just like he said to Peter, he's like, hey, in this new world, you're gonna be with me. God says, your salvation, the fact that I have made you new here on earth is actually, and you're gonna be with me. Come back and I'm gonna make everything new and you're gonna be with me. All sickness, all suffering, all struggle, all toil, all brokenness, whether that be relationships, health, financial concerns, it's all gone. And best of all, guess what? You get to be with God. Perfect intimacy with God, no longer plagued by your sin anymore. He's like, this is eternal life, this life to come, you're gonna be there with me. And why do you get that? Because you're his child. You didn't work for it. You don't earn it. You're an heir because you're a child of the Father who possesses the new heavens and the new earth. So God appears. He saves. He gives his spirit. He will make all things new. What's our role in that? The text makes pretty clear. We're not initiators. We're not earners. Okay, we are receivers and responders. That's it. We receive from God, and all that we can do is respond to God. 
We don't earn. We don't initiate. This isn't on our terms. It's on his terms. But we get to say, Jesus, if you would live, if you would die, if you would rise again, if you're going to come back and make all things new, yes, I want to live for you. This provides a really secure identity because it's no longer about earning anymore. It's no longer about platforming. It's about recognizing who you are in Christ, that you were an orphan, you were in desperate need of a father to welcome you home and to invite you, and God has done that for you. He has already done that for you. He has already done that for you. In verse 8, Paul closes with this, this verse. He says, the saying is trustworthy. This gospel is trustworthy. It is true. And I want you to insist on these things, looking back up to the first two verses, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. It says, this gospel is true. You were once far off from God. You wanted nothing to do with him. You were blind. You were dead. But God appeared to you. He extended mercy to you. He was patient with you. He was gentle with you. He was gracious with you. And so those people that have not yet said, Jesus is my Savior and Lord, here's what you need to do. Do that to them. Be patient with them. Be gentle with them. Be kind to them. Extend mercy to them. Be gracious to them. Really simply put, okay, extend kindness to those far from God. Jesus did the same for you. That's what this text is about. Extend kindness to those that are far from God. It's exactly what Jesus did for you. Down to the salt company, Des Moines, last Thursday. That's why I wasn't here with you guys. Uh, sad face, by the way. I missed you a ton. Um, we drive. Uh, sad face, by the way. I missed you a ton. Um, we drive by this car on the way down there, and had a bumper sticker on it. Bumper sticker would have summarized my big idea like this. It said, "Be kind. We're all idiots." That's what the bumper sticker said. I'm like, that'll kind of preach, though. You know, be kind. We're all idiots. That's what Paul is telling Titus, right? And if you're a Christian in this room, I just want you to know, like, you are not better than a non-Christian. Are you better off? Absolutely. You are better off because your eyes have been opened. You can see. You are alive. So are you better off? Absolutely. Does that make you better? I've heard it said, you know, evangelism is one beggar telling another beggar. You know, evangelism is one beggar telling another beggar where they found bread. You're still a beggar. Good news is you know where the bread's at. You've, you have had your eyes open to the personal work of Jesus Christ. Other beggars, friends at work, friends on your campus, friends in the city, friends back home, family members that don't yet know Jesus, they're a beggar too. They just need another beggar to tell them where to find bread. So really simple application for you tonight, okay? Two things that you can do. Number one, accept the kindness of God. 
If you look at verses three through seven and you have never ever realized that the good news of Jesus Christ is actually not about you earning your way to heaven, but God coming to you, extending kindness to you, saving you, filling you with his spirit, his presence, securing for you an eternity in heaven. I'm gonna ask you to actually believe that tonight. This saying is trustworthy. It is true. Accept the kindness of God. And that means you need to do one of two things, if not both, okay? When we get rid of the kindness of God, we do one of two things. We either perform, we try to earn our way to God, we try to say, look at all my good actions, or what we do God, we try to say, look at all my good actions, or what we do is we pretend. We look out and we do this docu-series game with non-Christians and we say, well, at least I'm not as bad as them. Performing and pretending are all about your ego. And that is anti-gospel, to run back to this text time and time again, whether it be for the first time or the hundredth time, to say, my identity is actually secure because of who Jesus is and who he has made me to be. And once you have started there, once you understand the kindness of God, your next application point is to extend kindness. First you accept kindness and then you extend kindness. As someone who has been shown incredible mercy and kindness, you move towards non-Christians with mercy, patience, gentleness, loving kindness. But what I think we need to do is actually slow down and ask God to change our heart. Say, God, you know this non-Christian circle of friends, classmates, coworkers, you know that they get on my nerves. You know that I get frustrated with them. You know that I'm prone to platform myself and put them down so that I feel better about myself. Would you change my heart? Would you actually help me to obey your commands, to change the way I think about them, to change the way I speak about them, to change the way I serve them? And here's a few things that you could, you could do, okay? Number one, you could serve non-Christians rather than separate yourself from non-Christians. Okay, it's really hard to live out the Great Commission if you're not around non-Christians. If you're just in your holy huddle, you can't really do the job of sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. Maybe you need to start serving people that don't yet know Jesus instead of separating yourself from them. Number two, maybe you need to build them up and encourage them rather than tear them down. Number three, maybe you need to pray for them instead of slander them behind their back. And lastly, maybe you need to share the gospel with them instead of trying to solve all their issues. <laughs> like you keep trying to fix all their moral behavior, but you've never opened your mouth and shared with them how you became not blind, how you came to experience life. And I think when we share the gospel, here's what we get to do. We actually get to tell people how Jesus is better. Not just how their behavior is wrong and how they shouldn't do stuff. That's not actually very motivating when you say, well, you shouldn't do that. Why? How is Jesus better? That's what we get to begin sharing. Jesus is better. Because Jesus satisfies your soul, you no longer need to pursue satisfaction in partying. Because Jesus actually has died and has rose again to give you peace, 
you no longer have to anxiously scroll through social media to try and find peace. Jesus already died for you to give you peace. Okay, all for people. One commentator says this way. This is the vision of how we live this out, okay? But this is the vision of how we live this out, okay? When Christians exalt the word of God and demonstrate God's power to transform lives, these things are excellent and profitable for people. For the believers themselves, and even more significantly, as far as the emphasis of this passage is concerned, for the unsaved sinners around them who are drawn to Christ by the exemplary lives of those he has graciously transformed. That's awesome, right? To say, as we accept mercy and extend mercy, here's what's gonna happen. Number one, it's gonna be, you're gonna actually experience closeness with God. It's gonna be good and profitable for you because you're gonna step into God's good commands and you're gonna be close with him. But that's not all. He's actually going to use you as you move towards this outside world who has rejected Jesus just like you once did, you're gonna put God's transforming work on display. And I hope that people would say, I know that we don't believe the same things. Why are you so kind to me? And then you get to drop a (laughs) J-bomb, right? You can say, actually, I'm just doing unto you what was done unto me. This is exactly what Jesus did to me when I was far off. He showed me kindness. He was patient with me. He served me. He died in my place and he rose again that I might be made new. Does that sound interesting to you? (laughs) That as we move towards outsiders, we would actually get to see more and more people worship Jesus. Because as we already talked about with summer teams, he's worthy to be worshiped. Not just in Cedar Rapids, not just in the state of Iowa, not just in the United States, but Thailand, Brazil. The whole world deserves it because this is the God we serve. Amen? Pray with me. God, you are a God of loving kindness. You are a God of generous love that you would send your son to live the life that we couldn't, that you would, Jesus, undergo every temptation we have ever faced and yet never sin, that you would die the gruesome death that we so rightly deserved by being foolish and disobedient and following our own hearts rather than following you. But thank you, Jesus, that you saved us not by our own deeds but by your mercy, that you would send your spirit to live within us, that you would prepare for us an eternal age heaven where you will wipe away every tear from our eye, that we will get to be perfectly close with you. But God, I ask your mercy would not just come to us and stop there, but that your mercy would flow through us. That your kindness would be made known to an outside world that is in desperate need of hope. People that can't see, people that are spiritually dead. God, we pray that you would, in your kindness, use us to help Share the gospel, to serve, to encourage, to speak life. And God, that in your power, you would give dead eyes the ability to to live and see. But our family, our friends, our classmates, our coworkers would turn from their sin. Jesus, that they would see you as worthy to be worshiped because you are. 
So even as we pray that now, God, prepare our hearts to respond to you. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.